we've been in a series called Love Thy Neighbor for the past uh, several weeks, uh, four or five weeks. Uh, we've been using the parable of the Good Samaritan as sort of like a table of contents as the, uh, to look at the ways we can love those around us. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. So I'd like to read back through the entire passage again, uh, and then after that, pray that God will once again show us something, uh, something new this morning. So let's read through, uh, starting with Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal, to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to gather together, Lord and uh, read through your word, Father. And we pray now, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you will use it to teach us something, Father. Please do not let me speak any untruth, Lord, or anything that's not edifying to your people, Father. Please, Father, be with me, Lord, as I speak, Lord. Be with them as they listen, Lord. We love you, Father, and we're so thankful, Lord, that we can even pray to you like this, Lord. All because of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, Father. Be with us this morning, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So as David Minenberg mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the context of this parable is really important with regards to the relationship between Jews and Samaritans at this time in history. Uh, David mentioned a little that there was a long-standing history of antagonism here, and these two people basically saw each other as enemies, these two people groups for the most part. And in fact, about 100 years prior, uh, there was a Jewish leader named John Hikernum, Hikernus, yeah, say that one 10 times fast, uh, who had led an army to destroy the Samaritan temple. So he led an army and they destroyed it and burned it to the ground, which was the Samaritan's prior place of worship. And that was only about 100 years prior uh, to when this parable is being told. So when you hear that Jews and Samaritans uh, didn't get along and that Jews went out of their way to travel around Samaria, even if it took them a longer time to get to their destination, uh, it sounds petty, but they had more than just a general dislike for each other. They really for the most part, did see each other as enemies at this time. So with that context in mind, we should try to look at this parable and look at the Samaritan stopping uh, as the same way that a Jewish audience would have looked at it at this time. And they would have seen that Samaritan who was helping the man, they would have looked at him as an enemy. The audience hearing it would have looked at him as an enemy. And I think one of the goals here of this parable uh, was for the audience, which includes us today, to see our enemies in a different light and to think about them as more than just enemies. Um, the goal here is that when we look at our enemies, we should be thinking of them as neighbors. 
And so this morning, let's turn to Matthew 5. Uh, We're going to start with verse 43. We're going to read something that some of you have probably heard before, and this is Jesus' words on how to treat our enemies. Verse 43, uh, Matthew 5. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that last line is, uh, just to talk about that for a second, is a reminder from Jesus of the high bar that we're held to by God, which is a bar that obviously none of us can reach, but it's still one that we're called to strive to reach, knowing that the cost of our failing to meet it has already been paid for by Jesus. Uh, But today, we're going to focus specifically on Jesus' words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And as a high-level concept, loving your enemies is something that's pretty easy to grasp, I think, Uh, and it's something that we've heard a lot in our lives, and even culturally, uh, it can be said sometimes. We know it's something we should do, but in practice, uh, it can be really hard to, to know exactly what that should look like. First and foremost, we should probably answer the question of who are our enemies? Um, And on one level, as Americans or Canadians or Singaporeans, uh, whatever country we're from, there are obviously those who we might consider to be our enemies on a nation level, um, like opposing nations. Uh, But on a a more relatable level, there are those whom we disagree with politically, which is probably one of the more common ways of thinking about someone as an enemy in today's cultural climate. Um, But... This morning, I want to go to even deeper than that. I think we are much more likely on our, in our day-to-day lives uh, to deal with people who consider Christians to be enemies, especially up here uh, in this general area. We're surrounded by people who very much oppose uh, the gospel of Christ Jesus. And Paul tells Timothy in his letter that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus should expect to be persecuted. And despite him saying that, And despite us knowing the part of the country that we live in, we might sometimes still tend to think that our coworkers and our unbelieving friends are maybe mostly just neutral on Christianity. Like maybe they're they're okay with it, they're not into it, but it's not, you know, not their thing, but it's probably fine. But a pretty large number of people up here who are unbelievers would consider many core Christian beliefs to just be straight up indefensible uh, in a modern world especially our belief that we as humans are not the ultimate moral authority on what's right and wrong. People reject that nowadays. That's not something that they like to think about, that that we don't decide what's right and wrong. And so those who reject Christ are, in a real sense, enemies of God, which sounds harsh, but this is what Scripture tells us. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness, Of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And James 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God and that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, which is really harsh to read through it. Um, But rejecting the creator of all things, the sustainer of all life, by whose word every molecule is held in existence, rejecting him, ignoring him, and saying, I'm going to live life my own way, is the ultimate act of defiance. I don't think there is a higher act of defiance than looking at the Creator and saying, nope, I've got this under control, I'll I'll handle things my way. So it's understandable, I think, 
that when we read the Bible and it tells us unbelievers are enemies of Christ, I think it's an, it's an understandable thing. At the same time, though, as we just read, Christ commands us to love our enemies. So how do we do that? How do we balance these two realities, uh, knowing that they're enemies of God, but at the same time being called specifically by Jesus to love them? So this morning, we're going to go over five different ways, hopefully five practical ways uh, that the Bible teaches us to do this. So for the first, let's go to Ephesians 4. We're going to start with verse 17. This is Paul writing a letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So this is the first way that we can love our enemies, and that's to not be conformed to the ways of this world. This passage is telling us that unbelievers are blinded to the glory of Christ, and so they worship the things of this world. They set their sights on the things of this world. And Paul, the writer of this letter, calls out greed, which is the love of money and possessions, as one of the things that they set their sights on, which, at least for me, is relatable, uh, especially up here, uh, where there seems to be so many people who are set on wealth. Sensuality is another one, which is the desire to experience physical pleasures. And hardened hearts, to use the language of this passage, hardened hearts means that your heart doesn't break for the things that breaks God's heart. And our hearts will become hardened if we're filling them with things of this world. Give it enough time and it'll happen. I mean, we can see it in unbelievers around us with, uh, as the letter said, with callous and hardened hearts. And as Christians... It's not possible for us to truly love those around us, those who need Christ, if the things we're pursuing are no different from the things they're pursuing. We're to be a light in this world, in it, but set apart from it. Some of you may have heard that before. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect it becomes much harder for us to discern the will of God when we let the world transform us instead of Jesus. And the more we look like the world, the less we have to offer it. And more importantly, God isn't honored when we're not letting him shape us and when we're letting the world shape us, whether it's through the entertainment that we watch or the books that we read or the music we listen to. If we're being conformed to this world, it's much harder for us to know the will of God and to love the unbelievers around us. And I mean that just as much for myself as anyone else in the room. In fact, Archbishop William Temple, I consider not including this quote from him because it causes me a lot of stress when I think about it. Um, William Temple said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. And the verse in Romans that we just read says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's in our solitude. It's when we're with others. The way we do that is by reading the word and making time to spend with God in prayer. This is how we fight. This is how we fight against being conformed by the world and equip ourselves to love our enemies. 2 Timothy Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So we need to equip ourselves for good works by spending time daily in the Word. Ask God to show you something when you read it, and ask Him to give you joy in reading it. If you don't have that joy, ask Him. And when you read something like 2 Timothy, think about the fact that a real person wrote this. Paul wrote this on a piece of paper or a parchment, I guess, uh, and, and he had it delivered to Timothy in this case. And here we are reading it in our, in our hands, some of us holding it in our hands or on our phones 2,000 years later. It's real. It's not something somebody made up. A real person wrote it. And more than that, when it was written, God knew that we would be here today reading it. There's nothing else like this book in the world. You can't say that about any other books besides the Bible, that it is God's inspired truth and that he put it there so we could come here today and read it. So we have to make reading it a part of our lives, and we, we should ask God to give us joy in reading it. If we're going to love those around us, we have to reject being conformed to this world and instead be transformed daily into the image of Christ. And the more time we spend reading God's Word and in prayer with Him, the more time we're equipped with the truth, which is something that the unbelievers around us need more than anything else in the world. If we saturate ourselves with the gospel, then we can have a Christ-centered response when someone mentions a difficult situation they're going through or something that's been troubling them on their mind. And that response could be as simple as telling them that we'll pray for them, uh, or as big as telling them that during difficult times we find peace in reading the Bible and maybe suggest some passages for them. So if the first way to love our enemies is to not be conformed to the world, the second way is this, don't withhold the gospel from people. And more specifically, speak truth in love. There's an event in Acts 26 when Paul is in the custody of Roman troops uh, he's been arrested, and he's been sort of working his way up through the du judicial uh, system in Rome. And there's a moment where he's speaking at a trial in front of King Agrippa. And King Agrippa is going to decide what happens to Paul next. And this story, for me, has always been really helpful because of the structure Paul uses to tell his story to King Agrippa. So we're going to pick up with Paul speaking at the trial in Acts 26, verse 12. And we're just going to read up to verse 19, which is kind of cuts off in the middle of the sentence. I wanted to read this entire passage because it's so amazing, but it would be like 10 minutes of reading. So we're going to read uh, from verse 12. Uh, so I lost myself in the manuscript here. Verse 12 and uh, just uh, verse 19. So this is Paul speaking. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So I want to pause here and talk about the way Paul is presenting this so far to the king. So far, he's only described his personal situation. Paul's only described things that have happened to him in his life. He's not talking about theology. He's not arguing yet. Uh, he's really just describing things that have happened to him. And I'm not sure how many of us had visions like Paul did. Maybe, maybe some of y'all. 
Um, but that's actually not the point. The point is, is that all of us have had real things happen in our lives, things that have led us to deeper faith and things that we can tell others about. Let's actually skip ahead to verse 22 and just read through these last three sections. We're going to go to verse 29. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he, Paul, was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but all who hear me this day might be such as I am, except for these chains. So at this point, Paul has moved on to explaining the theology behind the personal story he was giving before. And this is something that's incredibly important because a lot of the beliefs in the world today are based upon something happening to someone and then they develop their own explanation for it. They come up with why they think this thing happened to them. But we as Christians are to interpret everything that happens to us, all of our life experiences, through the lens of Scripture. It's not just what we make up, some reason that we think things are happening. We should read the Bible and interpret what happened through the, through the Bible, which is exactly what Paul's doing here. And even though King Agrippa has total control over what happens to Paul next, whether he goes to prison, whether he's released, Paul's goal here doesn't seem like it's to get Agrippa to release him specifically. Paul's concerned with speaking the truth, with communicating to Agrippa through Agrippa's knowledge of the prophets in this case, that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. Paul knows something incredibly important. He knows something that's true about the state of reality, and he wants everyone around him to understand that reality. And this is the same way we should feel. We shouldn't withhold the greatest news of the world from those around us. We have to find a way to drop it into the conversation, to mention things that have happened to us specifically, like Paul has here, and make sure we're interpreting that through the lens of Scripture. The people around us who might seem to be maybe the most uninterested in Christianity, uh, or even the most opposed to Christianity, God can change their hearts just like he did Paul's. And God has laid it on us to speak the truth to them and to love them. And if you're inclined to think, yeah, you know, we hear that God changes people's lives. He changes their hearts. He has them do a 180. Uh, but this is Paul. This is 2,000 years ago. And maybe it's hard to think of some more personal examples. I can give you one that I think everyone in here uh, will be able to relate to. Almost everyone will be able to relate to on some level. And I can do this today uh, because Jeremy isn't here this morning. Uh, but I knew him before he was a Christian. I might be the only person in here that knew him before he was a Christian. Uh, and he wasn't apathetic to Christianity. He, he wasn't just kind of okay with it. He was fiercely opposed to it. I remember, I remember it. <laughs> he was fiercely opposed. And what we see in him now isn't cause for us to go up to Jeremy and say, wow, you really did it. Nice, nice job turning your life around. You really worked hard on that. The change actually had nothing to do with Jeremy. It wasn't something that he did. He couldn't do it, actually. It was entirely the work of Jesus Christ. God can take anyone anyone, his most steadfast enemies, and he can turn them 
into loving servants. In fact, this is specifically what Paul says in his letter to Timothy that God did to him. And Paul says that God picks someone so far from him to show how great his patience can be with unbelievers. And the best part is when that change happens, when God takes someone's heart and changes it like that, and their eyes are open to the truth, they thank God for it. They thank God for breaking their heart. And this should remove the burden from our shoulders when it comes to speaking truth to the unbelievers around us, because it's not our words that change them. It's God working through us and in the heart of that person listening. God calls us to speak truth and to spread his gospel, but as long as we're faithful, he will use us regardless of how eloquent our words are. And as we're seeking to know what to say or when to say it or how to say it, we should ask God to tell us. We should ask him in prayer to tell us. So a third way we can love our enemies is to spend time praying for them. In Luke 6, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray, to those, pray for those who abuse you. This is certainly not something that I actively practice as much as I should, despite probably all of us having heard that before. Um, Paul Washer, who's a, a really great pastor, if you've never heard him, you should look him up, he said in a conversation one time that when you're talking to an unbelieving friend, we should be circling their souls looking for a crack to put the gospel into. Which sounds kind of antagonistic from one point of view, but another way to think about it is they're sick, and they don't even know they're sick. They don't believe it, and we have to be finding a way to try to bring it up to them. And we need to ask God to show us how they're hurting, what their needs are, Ask him to heal them through our words and through our actions, and we need to make ourselves open to whatever God has for us. If you spend time praying for unbelievers, or maybe even just for folks that you don't get along with, God will be faithful to give you words to speak to them. And he'll also give you a new perspective. When you look at them, if, you pray, if you're praying for someone, when you're looking at them, it's hard to see them as an enemy. God will give you a new perspective on them. And for unbelievers especially, for those who don't know Christ, they're, they're lost. I mean, they're lost in every sense of the word. Atheists, if they stop and they think about it too hard, they stop and think about life, they have to acknowledge that it is utterly, objectively meaningless. You live and you die, and then it's just over. You're just dead forever. There's no point to life. You can maybe try to make up something, um, which is the answer that you would hear from someone like Richard Dawkins is, yeah, just, just make up something, basically. It's a pretty bleak situation. And when the Bible talks about a peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace we have is knowing that that's not true. It's not, and that God is here for us. He's with us always, and when we take our last breath, there will never again be a time where we aren't with him. Unbelievers around us don't have that peace. And so we need to be praying for them to find it. Pray for God to use you to help them. Francis Spufford describes in, uh, this whole situation in his book, Unapologetic, uh, where he says, You are a being whose wants make no sense. They don't harmonize. Your desires deep down are discordantly arranged. You want truly to possess and to not possess at the exact same time. You are equipped for farce or even tragedy much more than you are for happy endings. And he's a Christian and when you look at that statement, that's the end of the story for those around us who don't know Christ. 
that statement is true about reality from their perspective, and that's just the end of it. So we need to be praying for these people. We need to be praying for how God can use us to speak the truth to them. And a lot of times when, when we say these types of prayers, when we're talking to God about this, He will put it on our heart to spend time with these people. And this can mean time outside of work or college or, or homeschool co-op. And Jesus does this in Luke 19, verse 5 with Zacchaeus. Uh, it says, And when Jesus came to this place, He looked up, at Zacchaeus and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. These are the, the people watching. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So the fourth way that we can love our enemies is to spend real, genuine time with them. And there are two things about this passage that I, I think can help guide us. So first, there's a warning. Jesus was very careful of the situation he brought himself into with this sinner. He didn't tag along with Zacchaeus while he was going around defrauding people, he didn't go work with Zacchaeus at his desk and help him cook the books or whatever he was doing uh, because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, um, which is the sin they're referring to in this case. Doing those things, if Jesus had done those things with Zacchaeus, obviously would have dishonored God. And there are certainly situations that we can put ourselves into, maybe under our own pretenses of evangelizing to sinners. There are situations we can put ourselves into that would dishonor God. And secondly... If the first one is kind of a warning, the second one, Zacchaeus wasn't poor or oppressed. The Bible tells us that he was actually a chief tax collector and was quite rich. There weren't many things in life, uh, presumably, that he wasn't able to buy. And so when we look at those around us, we may tend to look for the poor and oppressed as those most in need of the gospel, and they do need it. But we're also surrounded by people up here who have homes and plenty of food and jobs, Zacchaeus was the same way, and while he may have lacked nothing physically, or almost nothing physically, he was lacking everything spiritually. And so are the unbelievers around us, despite their appearances. Loving the poor and, pressed is, poor and oppressed is important, and the Bible specifically commands us to do that. But we're also to love anyone around us who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And that's actually the determining factor in whether or not someone needs our love and our time. Do they know Jesus Christ? So we should spend time with them. We should pray to God. We should try to find out what they worry about outside of work deadlines. What, what are their parents about? Do they have brothers and sisters? God calls us to, to love these people. And one of the ways we do that is with spending real, genuine time with them. Earlier, we talked about speaking the truth in love, and that's important. It's actually more important than just spending time with someone. Because at the end of the day, if they haven't heard the truth, then you had a coffee with them and they'll spend eternity in hell. But Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, come down from that tree and repent and be saved. In this case, he spent time with him. He went over to his house and he loved him. So to kind of close things out, the fifth and final way we can love our enemies, um, and this is maybe one of the most important ways, is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, which says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this is the fifth way we can love our enemies, by never forgetting that we did not start out as Christians. We came into this world as enemies of God, and our default nature is to turn our backs to God and to do things our way. We started out in the same place as those around us who are enemies of God. They're us, but for the grace of God. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we have to remember this when we're trying to love our enemies. God loved us when we were his enemies. And it was Jesus' love that transformed us into his friends, into fellow heirs with us, with him. And it's that love that we're called to show others. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ's love. And who better to tell God's enemies about it than us, sinners, once enemies of God, now saved by God's immeasurable mercies, mercies that are new each morning. So how can we not tell others about this? The only way we can do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that poured grace on us when we were deep in our sin, when we were enemies of God. That Spirit now lives in us, and we need to ask God to use us, to make us His instruments of mercy to those around us who are rejecting Him. If you pray to God and you ask Him to break your heart for the unbelievers around you, and if you study the Scriptures, if you read the Bible, and you ask God to bind those words to your heart, He will give you opportunities to love your enemies. And just as importantly, you'll want those opportunities. You'll look for them. And we know this is true because Jesus says in John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it's that water that the unbelievers around us need. And it's that water that we need to use to love them. Let's pray. Father, please help us, Lord, to love our enemies, Father, to love your enemies, Lord, because we know that we were your enemies, Father. We opposed you, Lord. We came into this world, Lord, wanting to do things our way. Thank you that you had mercy on us, Father. Thank you that you loved us, Lord. You've shown us the truth, Father. We are so grateful, Lord. We ask that you would use that love, Lord, that you would use that love through us, Lord, to speak to those around us, Father. Open our eyes, Lord, and our hearts. Please use us as your instruments, Lord. And let us never forget, Father, that it's all because of Jesus Christ, Lord. Thank you for him, Father. In Christ's name, amen.